Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this season of Advent. Thank you for the promise of your coming. Lord, come by your Holy Spirit and enlighten our minds and uh, quicken our hearts to be obedient to you, receptive to what you would say to us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's the first Sunday of Advent, the very beginning of a new year in the church calendar with the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. 2020 has been a year like no other I can remember, and I suspect many of you will be glad to see it go. So much change and upheaval, cancellations and chaos due to COVID. It's hard on the nerves. One hardly knows what to expect next. The isolation and abnormality assail one's mental health. It's a bit like the time that Kevin, a very inventive guy, decided he wanted to see just how fast a bicycle could go before it went out of control. Kevin was always trying out new things. He pedaled as fast as he could and got the bike up to 50 kilometers an hour. He was sure it could go twice as fast. So he asked his friend Eric, who owned an old Mustang, if he could tie his bike to the bumper of his car to test his theory. His friend agreed. So Kevin tied his bike to the back of the car and instructed Eric, I'll ring my bell once if I want you to go faster, twice if I want you to maintain speed, and repeatedly if I want you to slow down. With that, off they went. Well, things were going pretty well with Eric slowly increasing his speed until he was doing well over 100 kilometers an hour. Kevin and his bike were handling the speed just fine. Suddenly, a black Corvette pulled up beside them, revving its engine. Eric forgot all about Kevin tied to the back of the Mustang and started racing the Corvette. Down the road sat Constable Todd in his OPP cruiser. He heard the cars coming long before radar flashed 150 kilometers an hour. He called headquarters and said, you guys aren't going to believe this, but there's a Corvette and a Mustang racing out here on Highway 4, and right behind them there's the guy on a bike ringing his bell and waving his arms like crazy trying to pass them. <laughs> well, sometimes this year seems like we're that guy on the bike, waving our arms and wanting it to just stop. There's a lot of unusual pressures. Do we go out or stay home? Should we be wearing a mask or avoiding this location altogether? As we enter the holiday season, that brings a whole bunch of decisions. Will we get together at all with family or just stay home? Some of you are facing your own personal struggles, your health flared up, or that of a loved one. Some businesses are scrambling to cover for employees that can't come in or because of customers not coming in. There's an air of uncertainty, not knowing what's around the next bend. Maybe there's changes in your position or a, a boss that seems to have unrealistic expectations. Jeff, a laid-back sort of guy, was having trouble at work and was given 30 days to shape up or ship out. 
When he was asked by a friend how he was dealing with that kind of pressure, Jeff said philosophically, Hey, I used to come to work not knowing if I still had a job. Now I know I'll have one for at least 30 more days. Our scripture text predicts a time of unprecedented change and upheaval at some time in the future. Yet it also reveals some things we can know about it that can give us hope when we're tempted to be anxious or discouraged. Mark 13, 24 to 25 says, But in those days following on that, on, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Granted, Jesus is using apocalyptic language like what the Old Testament prophets used, which may be symbolic or literal. Joel 2.10, for example, describes an invasion of an army of locusts in similar terms, in which case the darkening of the sun would have been due to a sky full of locusts. Some commentators have noted a nuclear eruption could cause thick clouds, which would also cover the sun and plunge us into nuclear winter. Ezekiel 32, 7 is another passage predicting judgment against Pharaoh that warns of cosmic upheaval. When I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. Back to verse 25 in Mark 13 there. Stars falling from the sky. Could that refer to nuclear warheads dropping from ICBMs? How else would people back in Bible times describe it? What would it look like to them? But the phrase, the heavenly bodies will be shaken, makes us stop and think. This is more than just kind of human-made stuff going on here. What we call laws, scientifically speaking, are merely ongoing phenomena that we really don't have an explanation for why they are the way they are, other than God made it that way. The law of gravity, the law of subatomic forces that keeps electrons whirling around a minuscule nucleus of protons and neutrons, how orbitals behave when excited, hydrogen bonding that gives water such special properties. Kepler's laws of planetary motion, and so on. What's to keep everything from simply flying apart if God suddenly gave the order to unzip? We do have the prophecy of 2 Peter 3, 10 and 12. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. The day of God will bring about the destruction of of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Wow. To make way for a new heaven and a new earth that we look forward to in keeping with his promise in verse 13. Hmm. In verses 28 to 30, our Lord sounds very definite about these changes approaching. Jesus said, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. 
Well, some of us have heard it told that you can forecast what kind of a winter it's going to be, for instance, by, by the bands on a woolly bear caterpillar. How many knew that one before? Or heard of that one? Yes. Farmer's Almanac lists some other supposed indicators of a cold, harsh winter. Thicker than normal onions or corn husks. Woodpeckers sharing a tree. The early departure of geese and ducks. Well, that one sort of makes sense. The early migration of the monarch butterfly. Thick hair on the nape of a cow's neck. Guess I'll have to check our Jersey calf, honey boo boo. This one or? Yeah, I found making noise. You're cut. Okay, I wondered if you would want to use this one. Yep. <laughs> we can arrange that, Wes. Our pardon for the, the microphone difficulties. I tried rearranging the, the lapel mic here to see if that would help, but apparently not. Anyway, some other signs here. Uh, pigs gathering sticks. Mice chewing furiously to get into your home. Well, maybe we've had some of that. Unusual abundance of acorns and so on. Well, Jesus is saying we rely on some of these natural signs like tree buds about to burst into summer leaf. But we need to pay attention even more to signs relating to his coming kingdom. Next section, coming, the author steps on stage. There's a saying, when the playwright walks onto the stage, you know the play is done. Christ himself describes his appearing centuries later in verse 26. Says, At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He doesn't use some magisterial title, but a humble reference to himself who came before, born of a woman, son of man. He is coming. That's the meaning behind Advent. He came once at Christmas, born at Bethlehem, laid in a manger in a rough stable, fleeing hastily like any refugee to Egypt to escape slaughter by jealous Herod. He is coming again, this time in great power and glory in contrast to his first coming so humbly and obscurely coming in clouds as the angels told the disciples when he was lifted up before their very eyes and hidden by a cloud at his ascension in acts 111 the angel said men of galilee why do you stand here looking into the sky this same jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. What else do we know about Jesus' return, his parousia, or second coming? What are some of the key Bible passages that tell us the basics? Well, way back in the Old Testament, Daniel 12 says, uh, There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. 
There are a couple of passages in Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Also, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 10. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So the doctrine or teaching about Christ's return is not an oddity or some far-off peculiar concept dreamt up by some conspiracy theorists or whatever, but an event that ought to spur us on to obey God day to day and to put our hope in him rather than what this world offers. Later today, we are celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper. It's designed to point us not only to his death on the cross for our sins, but his coming again for our salvation into eternity. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives the, the standard instructions churches use for practicing communion, and then Paul concludes, 1 Corinthians 11:26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By our taking the Lord's Supper, we are witnessing to those around, we believe he is coming back. And that gives us hope. Next section, collection, anticipating regathering. Uh, ask a younger person what's the best thing about Christmas. What are they likely to say? Presents. But ask an older person how will they respond. Well, they're more likely to say, just getting together and seeing my family. As we mature, our focus tends to shift, or at least ought to shift, from stuff to relationships. Getting together for the holidays is precious, pretty special. This past Wednesday, Ontario Premier Doug Ford announced that residents should only celebrate the holidays with their households this year as the COVID-19 pandemic continues. Well, people who live alone are allowed to join one other household so they don't have to spend the holidays alone. That makes Christmas look much different. Meanwhile, Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, said, it is safest for all of us to limit errands and outings to just the essentials, limit in-person activities to just our existing household members, and keep up with key prevention practices. There's a new insistence to limit interaction so spread of the contagion is lessened. Two days this past week, Ontario had over 1,800 cases that's really shot up. But something in us resists naturally being told we can't get together. Many have been protesting masks and distancing measures in some places. Yes, vaccines are on the way, but probably not for some months yet. We want to get together with our loved ones at these special holiday times. There's another aspect of Jesus' return, looking forward to an ingathering of the saints. Verse 27 
And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. The elect will be gathered together, God's chosen ones, those who have believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. When we commit our lives to him and pledge our obedience, God empowers us to be born again, to, to receive his very spirit within us as dearly loved children. And he will gather all those who are properly and actually God's children together at last. Communion, sharing and fellowship around a common table is a, a tiny preview of that. Next section, concrete. What else is there to bank on? In a COVID world fraught with change and upheaval and chaos, we all yearn for stability and security, things we can count on. We want to get back to normal, what's known and familiar, but we're not there yet. And likely when we do get there, even normal will look different than it ever did before. What can give us security when the world is in upheaval and it seems even the sky is caving in, the stars are about to fall? To me, the standout verse in this passage is verse 31. In a world that's coming apart at the seams, in a cosmos where even the heavenly powers are unsettled, there's just one anchor that can steady us. Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Think about the significance of that. Jesus' words are even more permanent, more lasting than anything material around us. Can we say it again together? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Of course, this isn't the only time Jesus ever made this point. Matthew 5.18, back in the Sermon on the Mount, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Luke 16.17 expresses a similar thought. One of my favorite verses on that subject is John 10.35 Jesus is in heated debate with the Jews. They have picked up stones and they're about ready to stone him and kill him. Yet Christ hangs his argument, if not his fate, on this very point, the authority of God's word. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. He banked on God's word in scripture. When they got their stones, they were ready to throw at him. Is it any wonder that Moses urged the Israelites to impress God's commands on their children, to talk about them at home and when traveling, to write them on their door frames and gates? Deuteronomy 6. Our families, the next generation, needs the assurance God's word provides, especially in such unsettled times as we are experiencing right now. Psalm 1 compares the person who meditates on God's law day and night to a tree planted by streams of water that regularly yields fruit in season, whose leaf doesn't wither when the scorching winds blow because it has a deep inner source of replenishment. Something permanent and powerful to hang on to, to give us hope when all around seems crazy and overwhelming. Well, the Bible doesn't give us a clear timeline for exactly when Jesus is coming back. Many of the signs of distress that he talks about in the previous verses, such as persecution, 
have happened before and they keep on recurring. Your Christian brothers and sisters around the globe are already experiencing persecution. But there's an intriguing passage in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 to 10 that talks about a man of lawlessness that's been prevented in the past from being exposed but will emerge just before the Lord returns. 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, 7-10a. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in, all, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to, to love the truth and so be saved. This year has seen an abundance of protests, some peaceful and legitimate, others uncontrolled and destructive, movements to defund the police, Conspiracy theories, some followed not just by wild-eyed crazy people, but actually friends and people we know. Opposition to authority, whether over masking or distancing or lockdown measures. There seems to be a tangible increase in the degree of lawlessness, an inclination by the majority to do your own thing and not take any positions of judgment regarding what have traditionally been sort of settled matters of morality. In such times, rage becomes the measure of what's right. Emotional volume trumps established ways. The apostle says in this context of lawlessness and every sort of evil, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Do we love the truth? Are we anchored in the Lord's word? Only it can help us stand steady as a well-rooted tree and bear fruit. How else are we going to know which end is up? Psalm 119, 11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Last section. Carry on. Keep watch between the watches. Jesus closes this discourse with a word picture found only in Mark's account. It's drawn from everyday life, a, a person going away and leaving others in charge till they return, verses 34 to 37. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. That last part refers to the four watches in the Roman system to divide up the hours of the night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So we might title this, Keep Watch Between the Watches. You may have heard of the slogan, keep calm and carry on. It rose to prominence with a poster produced by the British government in 1939 designed to boost the public's morale as they were threatened with widely predicted mass air attacks on major cities. Today we face a different kind of air attack, not the Luftwaffe, but coronavirus. Can we keep calm and carry on? 
rather than yield to panic, anxiety, bickering, and lawlessness. Our master's analogy is that of someone leaving their house and putting their servants in charge, quote, each with his or her assigned task. What task has the Lord assigned you in his household, his vineyard? Are you being tempted to lose sight of that and get swept along with a general societal dis-ease? Yet it's precisely in times of social unrest that Christians' faithfulness, gentleness, patience, perseverance, and general goodness and love ought to stand out the most. Make him wonder what you got. How are you advancing Christ's cause in your corner of the neighborhood? Do those in your circles see you making a contribution to his kingdom advancement in some way? Sometimes the most simple things speak the loudest, pure grace. One night, a traveling couple named Fred and Marlene Nichols had stopped at a service station when they were suddenly struck by a trucker who had lost control of his vehicle. They were both injured badly. As Fred lay there bleeding, unable to move, he felt a stranger's hand on his shoulder. When he looked up, he couldn't believe his eyes. It was Bobby Knight, basketball coach for the Indiana Hoosiers, who has quite a reputation for being a tantrum-throwing hothead. Earlier that year, Knight's team had won their NCAA championship. Knight was on his way to receive a Coach of the Year award when he came upon the scene of the accident. Nichols said Knight took charge of the situation, offered words of comfort and hope, and even stayed with their belongings until the wreckers arrived. This story never made the headlines and was barely mentioned by the media. How about that? He delayed going to receive an award just to help out someone who's been in an accident. Doing the right thing, loving one's neighbor, mattered more than receiving an earthly prize. Last section, communion. Sharing as family at heaven's table. Today, as we prepare for our first communion of a new church year, I'd like to close with a piece by Andrew Blackwood summarizing ten different meanings attached to the Lord's Supper. First, it's a memorial of Christ's redeeming grace. This do in remembrance of me. Like the Passover out of which it grew, the Christian Supper teaches us to look upon the meaning of our redemption. Second, it's a symbol of Christ's death for us sinners. This is my body, which is broken for you. Third, it's our mightiest means of grace. Grace is the sum of all that we know about God. It's the attraction of his goodness supremely in the cross. The means of grace, as we use the term, includes the, the reading of the Bible, private prayer, public worship, and the Lord's Supper. Fourth, it's a thanksgiving feast. Such is the literal meaning of the stately title in Greek, the, the, the Eucharist. In Greek, the original word means thanksgiving. Fifth, it's likewise a family meal. As such, it has among Christians the place which the Passover filled in the religious experience of the ancient Hebrews. The Passover was preeminently a family meal. Six, this family meal is at the same time the Holy Communion with the church of all the ages on earth and in glory. This is no small part of what we mean when we stand to say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Communion of Saints.
The word communion literally refers to that which we have in common. Another word means almost the same as communion, as is fellowship. Seventh, it's likewise a sacrament. Theologically, the word sacrament means an outward and visible sign of God's inward and spiritual grace. Eight, the sacrament is also a covenant of grace. Jesus calls it this cup of the new covenant in my blood. Nine, there's a sermon in the supper, the most powerful moving sermon in the history of the church. You do show the Lord's death till he come. The verb translated show literally means to preach, to proclaim. And ten, the Lord's supper is a symbol of Christian hope till he comes. Let's pray. Sovereign God, thank you for the hope we have in Christ. We praise you for his promise that he will come again. We bless you for the sureness of your holy word, for all your precious promises in the Bible, for the direction and clarity it gives us for daily living. Help us to keep at our assigned task, whatever that may be, and to be found worthy to stand before you at the last when Jesus comes to be glorified in his saints. Show us ways to proclaim his death and share our hope with others. In his name we pray. Amen. Moment and prepare your communion elements, as you may have. As we gather at the Lord's table, Scripture admonishes us to examine our hearts and confess our sins, lest we partake of this holy ordinance unworthily. I'll begin, followed by a few moments of silent prayer, and then the Lord's Prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We confess in silence. Praying our Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Hear this promise of assurance of forgiveness from 1 John 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thanks be to God. We recall the circumstances of the Last Supper, the evening before Jesus went to the cross for us, as recorded in Luke 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Once again, let us pray. O God, who in great mercy gave your only Son, Jesus, to suffer upon the cross, to buy us out of slavery to sin and death, we come to you with humility to celebrate in this memorial of his suffering and death. We believe, our Father, that you hear us, and we ask you to bless and set apart by your word and your spirit these your gifts of bread and wine. Amen. All you who truly and earnestly repent of your sins and are in right fellowship with your neighbors and intend to live a new life following the commandments of God and walking in his holy ways, draw near with faith and take part in the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his body for you, preserve your soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this bread in remembrance that Christ died for you. Feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. The Lord Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for you, preserve your soul unto everlasting life. Drink this cup in remembrance that Christ shed his blood for you. Partake of him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Let's pray. We praise you, O God of our fathers, for the gift of your Son, our Mediator, in whose sacrifice you have revealed your redeeming love. How shall we respond to you for all your benefits to us? We will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. We will pay our vows now in the presence of all his people. Let your people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you for your mercy and your truth. We praise you, O Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world for the atonement which you have made. We praise you, O Holy Spirit, for the holy power you impart to us. Glory to you, precious God, now and forever, world without end. Amen. <laughs> 